There once was a young couple who bought a house, their first house out in the country. But they did it naively, and they didn't get it inspected first. And they discovered something horrifying after the fact, that their house was sitting on two foundations with a gap in the middle. It was a horrible situation that those of you who are homeowners know. They had to practically tear the whole house down, relay the whole foundation to salvage what they had purchased. It was a terrible experience for them. And look, every house has some kind of imperfection in it. If you're a homeowner, you will always have a hobby of fixing up your house. But one thing you cannot make a mistake on is the foundations. You can't make a mistake on the foundation that everything else is founded and built upon. Or else you might have to tear the whole thing down and start again. And the same, amazingly, is true of our faith. We rest in as one foundation as Christians. Amongst all of Christ's churches, amongst the Methodists, the Baptists, the Lutherans, and so forth, we all share one foundation, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. Which is why last week we were able to gather all together under one roof and worship together. And it'd be such a beautiful and wonderful experience that it was. Because we have that unity in that one foundation. However, there can never be real unity with a church that gets the gospel wrong, gets the scriptures wrong, or gets the authority of the church wrong. Those are foundational issues that if you don't share that, you're not sharing the same building, whether you realize it or not. And this morning we're going to address a major foundational issue between us and the Catholic Church which has grossly misinterpreted this text before us. And look, there are many differences between Catholics and Protestants that any casual observer will will notice walking into one of their worship services or one of ours. Um, Many superficial differences, but today we're going to focus on a foundational difference and the, the scripture that they twist to arrive at their position of the papacy which they derive from this text erroneously. And by the way, the only reason I'm going to be so in-depth about this today is because, well, frankly, this is New Jersey. We have a lot of Catholics in this area. If, if, I was, if this is in the hills of Tennessee, we don't have so many Catholics to answer. You, you have to, it's hard to find a Catholic church out there. But moreover, this is South Amboy. We're a one-square-mile town with two Catholic churches. You all know people who are Catholics. You have family members who are Catholics. And it's worth having or being able to give a scriptural response for why we are not. Why we reject that idea of the papacy and the, their religious system that they build around that idea. So, and as we consider this foundational difference, my prayer is that this won't just be a lecture, but that we will grow to appreciate and be reminded of the great privileges that we have for belonging to Jesus Christ and just resting in what he has done for us. So here's how Catholics understand the verse before us, specifically verse 18. 
We agree that up to this point that Peter has made the good confession that God has revealed to Peter that Jesus is not John the Baptist or some one of the other prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah, but that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response, they believe, as Jesus says to Peter in verse 18, he, he, he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And there's a play on words taking place here, as the word Peter, the very name Peter, means a little stone. So our neighbors up the street will say that Jesus looked at Peter and said, Great job, Peter. You got the answer. You are Peter. And on this rock, looking at you, Peter, you're my rock. You're my stone. I will build my church around you. You're my guy, Peter. I'm going to build my church on you. You, And when I go, Peter, you're my man. I'm giving you the keys. You will be my vicar, which means you will stand in my place once I'm gone. And then when Peter passed away, he passed the keys along with him to the next guy, so on, so forth, until we come to Francis today holding the keys. There's much more that could be said, but that's a fair representation of what they believe. So the question is, are they wrong? And where are they wrong, if if so? And the answer comes from a better understanding of the wordplay here in this verse. You see, the word for Peter, which means stone, and the word rock here, they're similar. There's There's a cool play on words going on here, but it's not the same. Jesus didn't say, I say you are Peter, and on this Peter I will build my church. There's a big difference there. You see, the word for Peter, as it was originally written, is Petros, and the word for rock is Petra. They sound very similar, but they're different. Petros, or Peter, means a small stone. And Petras, or rock, is better expressed as a massive foundational stone. And the grammar even suggests, even in the English, that that Jesus was not referring to the same thing. Petros, or Peter, is in the first person, but Petra, or rock, is in the third person. So putting this all together, Jesus is saying essentially to Peter, you, Peter, are my little stone. And on this other massive boulder, I will build my church. By the way, my church, Jesus' church, not Peter's. So the wordplay that we're intended to get, that, because there is a wordplay going on here with that Petros and Petros thing, is that out of, this, out of the little stone of Peter came the foundational stone that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Out of the little stone came the foundational stone. The foundation stone on Christ church is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not Peter. It's the confession. It's not the person. It's the it's. It, it, it's what he said. It's the proclamation of the gospel of who Jesus is. The confession that Jesus is Lord, of which is the foundation of the church. And all of those who attach themselves to that foundation are part of God's church that he is building up. 
that every believer is a part of. That's what's going on in this verse. That's how it's ought to be understood. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, what did Peter himself think about himself? Did did Peter himself view himself as the vicar of Christ, as the earthly replacement for Jesus when he went away? But we have two letters from Peter in the New Testament. What did he say about being the head of the church after Christ's ascension? Well, it says something quite interesting. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter's writing to these people as a fellow elder is what he calls himself. The highest title Peter ascribes to himself isn't his excellency, his eminence, but a fellow elder. That's the highest title he ascribed to himself. Hardly a grandiose expression of his authority. And furthermore, in that same letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter indicates that we are all living stones. Playing again on that word stone. That we are all living stones together being built up into the spiritual house that is his church. That's one definitely worth reading in your own time. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Because So not only is he refraining from calling himself the foundational rock, but that together we are building the, house, the spiritual house of God, the holy priesthood, it goes on to say, qualified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's, what the, that's how Peter viewed his role and the role of all of us here this morning. I'm going to come back to this point, so keep that in the back of your minds. So, so Peter doesn't say he was special. But uh, maybe he's just being humble. You know, he doesn't want to be boastful about his position, but he knows. So what do the other people say? Maybe the other apostles wrote something about Peter that we can take to the bank that he's the Pope. Well, that's where our first reading came in from 1, Peter, from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is... Jesus Christ. That's the foundation, according to the other apostles. And the truth is, I had a hard time choosing what my first reading was going to be. Because I had so many choices that all say the same thing. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church. Acts 4 verse 11, Jesus is the cornerstone. I could go on and on, but you guys get get the point. There's no confusion in all of the rest of Scripture of who is the head of the church, who's the cornerstone, who's the foundation, who's got the keys, if you will. The one almost exception is Ephesians 2, verse 20, that says that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, which is interesting. But it goes on to say Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone So even that one doesn't say what people mean it to be. And by the way, it says apostles and the prophets played the foundational role, not Peter or the papacy. 
And now, I, I, don't, I, I almost feel bad bashing on the apostles and the prophets in that way because, look, they had a role to play in the first century. They had a part in laying the foundation for the church. I mean, I didn't write any of the letters of the New Testament. Did you guys? I didn't plant any of the churches in the first century. I wasn't one of the evangelists that took the gospel to the corners of the earth. So they had a great role to play that will be remembered in heaven for all the ages. And I don't want to take away from that. But to ascribe to Peter specifically the role of the earthly replacement for Christ, the one who stands in his place on the earth, well, that just contradicts everything the Bible says including this verse before us in verse 18. And just for clarity, you know, if, if, they, if the Catholics just wanted their denomination to be headed up by one guy, I wouldn't make a big stink about it this morning. If they want to put one person in charge as their head bishop, okay, I'd, I'd argue that that's unwise, but okay, you're free to do whatever you want. You know, We're free to set up our synods and our presbyteries and general assemblies and all of that stuff, and other churches set up their, their models differently, and that's fine, well, and good. But the unmerited claims to absolute power and infallibility that some people make are just, that's out of line. And that's where it needs to be called out. So straightforward as I'm doing this morning. And honestly, I could do a whole seminar about everything wrong with the papacy. And, and the Catholic Church in general, I could do an all-day conference. There's, there's no small amount of material to get through. But it's not lost on me that this is a worship service. And so I just want to rattle off a couple of rapid-fire questions for you guys to ask your Catholic friends to engage the conversation with them that really put, bring this issue to focus and then I'm going to make some applications for our life before we conclude this morning. So point, question number one. If Peter is Christ's representative on the earth, the highest earthly authority, why does Paul have to rebuke him for teaching legalism in Galatians chapter 2? Some of you guys were here when we went through the book of Galatians. You guys will remember that. Why is the Pope being rebuked for false teaching? Interesting. Two, why was Peter sent by other apostles in Acts chapter 8, verse 14? How do you send the Pope off to do something? Question number three, if Peter is the head, why is it that nobody defers to Peter's authority anywhere in the New Testament? Paul even mocks this idea of saying, you know, oh, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And on that note, why does James have the final say in the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15 and not Peter? In other words, why is somebody else having a higher authority than the Pope? Who outranked that guy? Question five, why, did the disciple, why are the disciples still fighting over who is the greatest in Luke 22, verse 24, if Jesus already settled this matter? They would just say, oh, hey, Peter, you know, Peter's the greatest. Jesus decided that. If that's how this passage was meant to be interpreted. 
In fact, Jesus answered that question, who is the greatest? Right after that question was asked, he didn't pick up the Pope. He picked up a little child. He said, this is your example of who is greatest in the kingdom of God. Not the philosophers, not the theologians, but picked up a little child. And lastly, even if Peter was in this fictional, and I do say fictional, highly favored position, how do you make the case from the Bible that all the people who were to come after him would be in that same position and have that same authority? This is the only verse that they use to make this doctrine out of, and it doesn't speak that, Peter, your position, you know, will have this kind of authority. It just says, Peter. So it doesn't make any sense. So I hope simply that you guys are beginning to see that this doctrine is indefensible. From any angle I can look at this topic or this scripture, I, it doesn't make sense. And yet... People are fearful to leave the Catholic Church because they think, oh, I need to be in the Pope's ministry. Oh, I, I, I need the church. He's got the keys. What am I going to do? I don't want to be locked out of heaven. But such fears are baseless and unscriptural. With that in mind, you know, earlier I quoted from 1 Peter chapter 2, a, again, profound verse saying that the reality is, rather than him being the rock, we are all living stones, building up together into the spiritual house of God. That we are together building Jesus' church and into a royal priesthood, it goes on to say. Did you guys realize we are part of the priesthood? That's a radical thought when you think about it. That we don't need a series of priests to do the work for us. We have been commissioned and enabled to step into that role. You see, priests were part of this Old Testament Levitical system that stood between God and man. It was their job to provide atonement, which is, as a pastor friend of mine used to say, atonement simply means at one moment. That there was a oneness, a peace between God and man. And it was their job to do so because of our sins, to make these sacrifices, to make this one-ment between us and God again through, these, through this sacrificial system so that we could worship God and so that we could approach God. But that was only because we didn't have peace with God because of our sins. Our sins had separated us from God. You guys know this. But now, our sins have been dealt with. Through Christ and what he did on the cross, our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. So because that separation has been removed, this role is obsolete. It's unnecessary. Because our sins have been dealt with. <laughs> and that's why as we... On Good Friday, why the veil was torn in the temple from top to bottom. That wasn't just an interesting thing that happened to coincide with the crucifixion and the death of Christ. That was incredibly significant. 
Because that veil separated the holy of holies from, from the rest of us. That we weren't allowed to go into that area except for the high priest once a year. It separated this, it symbolized the separation between a holy and perfect God and us sinful people unable to approach God. And what happened after the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross? The thing that separated it was torn. From top to bottom, by the way, something they couldn't do. It was way up there. You couldn't rip it naturally like that. It was a, it was a God-made tear in the thing that symbolized that separation. Evidence that the spiritual separation between this holy and perfect God and the redeemed is now over. And now Hebrews 4 emphasizes that, saying that since we've now entered into God's rest through the blood of Jesus Christ for our sins, we can now come boldly into his throne of grace to obtain mercy in our time of need. Because the veil has been torn, we can now come into God's presence ourselves, offering up our worship, our prayers, and have a personal relationship with the God who was once afar off but is now brought near by the blood of Jesus. It's a wonderful privilege that we have. But you'll notice that our neighbors up the street don't emphasize a personal relationship with God, but a corporate one, one that requires you going through the priest's going through their own system of sacraments and sacrifices to be able to approach God. In other words, my friends, they act like the veil is still there. But in reality, it's all obsolete and unnecessary. Because if you are a Christian today who has been justified by faith, who has repented and believed the gospel, you don't need a priest you are a priest. You have been qualified by God to stand in that place. You don't need to say all the right prayers and make all the right sacrifices to make God pleased with you enough to hear you. He already loves you. He already cares for you. He's already given you access to him. And what's more, even more profound than that is God is pleased with you, which is such a radical idea. But even that, it's not because you have earned it, but because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all of your sins. You know, we talked about this on Good Friday, and many of you guys were here for that. But when God looks at the Christian, he doesn't see you for all of your sins, your guilt, and your shame. That's not what God sees when he looks at you. Rather, when God looks at you, he views you as if you had lived Jesus' holy and perfect life. This great exchange took place where on the cross, Jesus took all of my sins and gave us all of his righteousness. Uh, for 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he became sin who knew no sin, that we may become the righteousness of God. This great exchange of his righteousness for my sins. So God now looks at me as if I had lived Jesus' life because God looked upon Jesus on the cross and treated him as if he had lived my sinful life. 
That's the heart of the gospel. So yes, God is pleased with you because he is pleased with your covering that he has provided for you. So, no, I I don't think I need to see Christ representative on the earth or go through his system. Not when I can go to God myself. Not when he has opened up the way. Not when Jesus Christ himself, Hebrews 4 goes on to say, how he is our great high priest, making intercession for us, granting me access to the Holy of Holies in a very real spiritual sense. My friends, this is our great privilege as Christians. Not needing to go through any system of sacrifices or any religious system. We can go to God ourselves. What a blessed privilege we have that as you read through the Old Testament, people longed for the privilege that we now have. We would be wise and indeed blessed to enjoy that privilege this week. So my friends, yes, in conclusion, there is only one foundation for the church, and it is Jesus Christ. And if the foundation of your faith is anything other than Jesus Christ and him alone, not works, not a religious system, but founded on the simple thought, the simple truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, the savior of the world, the one who came to take away your sins and mine. Anything other than that, well, then, that's like the ho- then your faith is like the house that we began this sermon talking about, resting on two different foundations. And it cannot stand that way. It will be need to be torn down and rebuilt on the foundation that was provided, founded in his blood. Thanks be to God. Amen.